1: Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast, coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. Before we start today's episode, please hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to us on to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Today... We're talking about Uber's $5 billion loss, asking if we work, is we worthless, and giving our two cents on Disney's new streaming package. So we'll kick off today talking about probably one of the most talked about companies in the market this year Uber so they reported their quarterly earnings about 2 weeks ago and the big news that everybody was talking about was that big 5 billion dollar loss it's so, so mm. pretty hefty loss <laughs> but in fairness most of it was based on stock based compensation related to IPO back in May but even without that the company burned close to a billion dollars in cash in that 3 month period um, CEO Dara Khosrowshahi I'm sorry for absolutely butchering that name <laughs>
0: There's actually um, there's a YouTube video with a woman just saying his name oh, three right. times yeah. that I have to listen to every time we go onto this We'll uh, fix it in post yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, But he said anyway that he
1: expects this year to be the company's peak investment year quote unquote and that losses will temper in 2020 and 2021 um, But yeah, its stock is down about 20% now from its $45 IPO guidance and um, and, you know, the company's kind of going through the ringer in its first few quarters as a public company. But losses aside and stock-based compensation aside, we need to go back and talk about that cash burn. Because that is, that's Tesla levels of, of money being spent. The company, by its own admission, says it's in the early stages of capturing what it estimates to be a $12 trillion global market. That's trillion with a T. Um, and that includes all of its subsections like um, freight and uh, food delivery and stuff like that. But when you look at the company's report, um, the overall bookings are rising, but it's take rate. So this is the percentage of gross bookings retained by the company after driver's earnings, incentives, promos and refunds and all of that have been taken out. That's actually in steady decline. So it declined 22% in quarter one 2018 and 17, it's down to 17% now in the most recent quarter. Um, and it's kind of, it's it's for me, I think the biggest worry for me as I see as Uber as an investment is that we talk about Disney coming in with Netflix and Apple coming in with Netflix and we always say it's not exactly a zero-sum game that there's room for multiple subscription packages. I don't believe that in a thing like ride-sharing there is room for money. I think people are just going to go with the most effective and the most, it's particularly cost-effective. Um, Uber infamous for all the incentives they've rolled out and especially in recent times where there's been a lot of kickback, particularly from their drivers um, about how the company treats them. There's a lot more drivers incentives coming in and stuff um, and in the most recent filing the company said quote as we aim to reduce driver incentives and improve our financial performance we expect driver dissatisfaction will generally increase <laughs>
0: yeah so, that'll happen yeah <laughs> that 's usually what happens when you pay people less <laughs> so, so for me you know you look
1: at the the five billion dollars spent uh, in the last quarter, and that 's a worry, but the more specific worry I think is that they 're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place they 've got a high market share at the moment, but as they try and tr- try to become more profitable both drivers and users are going to start moving away to other competitors. And they have such an amount of competitors. You know, if you look in the US, there's obviously Lyft, but Uber are spreading internationally. There's other things like Ola, which is in India. There's Kareem, there's Didi in China. There's hundreds of competitors popping up. And that's just talking about ride sharing. When you look at food delivery, there's Grubhub, DoorDash, Deliveroo. From every aspect, I think Uber is spreading out too much and they're going to, struggle to turn a profit. Yeah, and there's a
2: consolidation as well. Over here on this side of the Atlantic, we have Freenow, which is a, uh, a joint partnership between BMW and Daimler to uh, basically uh, vacuum up all the taxi services in 100 cities and they've put a lot
0: of money behind that brand and they've
2: grabbed attention and mind space. Yeah.
0: I will say that in, in London, Freenow just doesn't, it's just not even on the radar. Oh really? Uber's just right. totally yeah. right, right, um, right. It's probably important to mention Freenow is not ride sharing as such too. No, that's true. Of, yeah. That's
2: true. But it is—it's it, a substitute product.
0: Yeah. You know. I, I think um, you mentioned the investment year. Uh, <laughs> that's, that they're being pretty charitable to themselves. Yeah. yeah. When they say it's an investment year, I think that's a—that's code for we're going of keeps losing an awful lot of money. So get used to us. And the expression <laughs> "in
2: for a penny, in for a pound" springs to mind, which I've just adaptly uh, googled and it's defined by Oxford as used to express someone's intention to see an undertaking through. However. Much time, effort, or money it entails.
0: <laughs> it sums it up really. Um, <laughs> I know the CEO. There, there was a kind of comparison going around after the earnings. It's like people can talk about them as like the Amazon of transport. Yeah. Which Which uh, the CEO Derek Kashish did use that term. Thanks. He did use that term, and you know the the idea being you know Amazon spent an awful lot of money in their early days, but. The difference, of course, is Amazon is actually generating loads of cash yeah. and investing in their future, building warehouses and getting their logistics in order. What what Uber are investing in is this notion that there will be driverless cars soon. And yeah. We really mm-hmm. don't know when it's going to happen. So mm-hmm. people think Elon Musk thinks it's going to be in two months' time, yeah. uh, and other people think it's you know ten, fifteen years away. So drivers are going to be very annoyed about those yeah. driverless cars. Um, so moving on, then. Actually, piece. sorry, before yeah. we
2: go to moving on, so the question is: Are you bullish? or bearish on Uber over the very
0: long term? I'm bearish. Mm. I'm bearish. Um, I actually think they might pull it off.
2: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, if you have a founder, well, sorry, a CEO who is talking about a 12 trillion opportunity and is giving it a shot, well, it certainly makes you sit up straight.
0: Yeah, I mean, and like, they're overvalued, at The mm. moment, yes, but overvalued can also mean they have a lot of people willing to give them money, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Look, it's it's a really tough one, and the brand
2: really, strength is unbelievable. Yeah, brand strength like, is really Uber strong. is yeah.
0: now a verb, yeah.
1: uber, uberification, was it? It? it uberization? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uberification, Uberfication, uberification, that's the one. yeah. So, moving on to another company that's had a lot of flack, maybe, boarded recently,
0: Rory. I'll let you lead in with this. Yeah, we're going to talk about WeWork. It's the company on everyone's tongue. Uh, they are... Oh, I had so much fun reading about this company over the last few days. And when I got to it, I was like, you have all these notes and you go, where do you start? Yeah. Like, where do you start mm. with There's mm. so much going on. Um, but anyway, so they posted their S1, which you sure really you think of an S1 as like a company's uh, dating profile um, or yeah. uh, their cover letter for a job application. You, know, you really want to push your best self forward. Uh, so, the first line of S1s are obviously always very interesting <laughs> as well. We've had uh, some good recent examples. It was uh, Snap. Snap, Snap, yeah. where Snap, We are a yeah. camera, camera their company. their first line. Yeah. So, I'm just going to read the first line from WeWorks S1. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, we are a community company committed to maximum global impact. Our mission is to elevate the world's consciousness. <laughs> that that's really, better than uh, we're a camera company Isn't, that, <laughs> that's isn't that. that's really like Timothy Leary what? kind of
2: Oh please acid save tritty. me yeah. but It's, actually, it's <laughs> so
0: perfect because what follows is one of the most bizarre abstract experiences I've ever had okay. in my life It sets the stage for one of the most bizarre S1s I've ever read So you know what you really want from an S1 is you want to see a company that has a clear vision of what they're doing and how they're going to make money and how they're going to grow in the future So uh, there's a company called Triton Research who do equity research and specifically focus on IPOs and I'm just going to quote what they said about it. Uh, the prospectus, which is the S1, is a masterclass in obfuscation. Wow. <laughs> wow. And Triton actually has what's called an obfuscation index Which measures how (laughs) how kind of straightforward companies are with these filings, and they have a really quite a good track record. Like companies that are very straightforward and open about things tend to do very well, and companies that don't tend to perform poorly. Um. So yeah, that that quote from uh, from from Triton a masterpiece of obfuscation is is quite is quite on the ball. Yeah. So uh, yeah, some examples um, of the obfuscation they're talking about they just give us so little information. Of, you know how those locations are performing or even like we don't even know when the locations were opened you know so they they's, instead you get this kind of they have this really weird infograph which is just a map of the world and all these dots everywhere and they're all linked with yeah. sp- like a kind of spider yeah. web yeah, yes, yeah. but no legend to tell you what these links mean or when the when the place opened uh, they don't say how profitable each workstation is really? they don't say give any idea of like is there brokerage fees involved mm. uh, what's the lifetime value of a, of, a, of a member like all this stuff is just kind yeah. of left for you to kind yeah. of guess. Yeah. Um, so that's one element <laughs> of it. Uh, then there's an awful lot of corporate governance stuff, which is, you know, really mad. The corporate structure, their simplified version of the corporate structure, which they give a graph on, mm. looks like the blueprint for a nuclear submarine. It's just so uh, crazy. There's all these, you know, different companies all operating kind of yeah. semi-independently around the world, and some of them are management contracts, and some of them are ownership contracts. It's just crazy but like there is there like there is a bull case there for this company somewhere um you know one of the ideas is like we work they claim that it's 57% lower cost per employee than a traditional office uh, space mm. um so the only way the only way they're going to get in there is by putting more people in the space and they they claim to have figured this out you know someone worked out that they could be operating an employee for every 50 square foot, which is about five times better than a traditional office space. Yeah. So that could be the technology element to that. And if they can pull yeah. that off, that's great. But unfortunately, you just don't know. We don't know what they're doing. The the You know, as your man from Triton pointed out, you know, if you build a better mousetrap, yeah, explain. Yeah, <laughs> explain yeah, yeah. why it works. Yeah. you mentioned them as a technology company there, and they do define
1: themselves as a tech company, which which kind of seems odd to me. Would you it, would you describe them as a
0: tech company? It's a, ve- a very very loose like definition a <laughs> a very definition of a tech company. Very loose definition of a tech company. You know, going back to the corporate governance, there's things like you know the the CEO uh, sold the trademark We to them for six million dollars. So he sold it. The CEO sold the trademark the to founding the
2: founding CEO. The founding CEO. The guy who okay. set it up. <laughs> I mean, have you ever heard of such a uh, sneaky maneuver?
0: He's uh, he's also borrowed like $700 million from the company oh. in the last <laughs> years and bought properties and is now releasing them that to the, the company? S1.
2: Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I rarely have, very, very rarely, looked forward to shorting a stock because I don't like um,
1: betting Just and I don't like. Just for the listeners, what explain exactly what shorting means? Oh,
2: shorting is something we don't really advocate here, but <laughs> and that's why I said so rarely do I do it, and so rarely do we, never do we speak about it. But shorting is where you, through your full service brokerage, um, enter into a contract with somebody, yeah, um, and pay them in this instance uh, on the promise that they will buy or sell you shares in any company at a fixed price for a fixed deter- for a predetermined period of time. Yeah. That's a mouthful. In other words and this concept of shorting uh, has existed uh, since the days of Damascus where bags of salt, where uh, salt was a commodity and someone could pay someone say I will give you um, in today's money 100 bucks now and a promise that you will sell me this bag of salt at today's price at any time up in the okay. next year yeah, yeah. so you fix fixed the price and therefore the seller of the salt gets 100 up front but accepts the risk that the price of salt might go up mm. and therefore could have made money by just not taking that money so yeah. that principle exists in both directions up or down uh, for virtually any commodity but um from the research that Rory did on we uh, work, are we worthless? Uh, as, uh, um, <laughs> is uh, and a couple of some of the things I read and heard, uh, I just don't like what I've seen and you know we're big believers in like the reason the jury's out is on Uber is because they are talking about a great giant global opportunity that yeah. you can buy into. And you know the data today is a bit ambiguous. For me, the data is beyond opaque. It's it's actually almost meaningless. Yeah. And you know the things that I saw when I had a look at the business, uh when I compared it to a, a business called IWG who are better known as Regis. Um uh, a network of office spaces around the world. A shoulder-to-shoulder comparison is just unbelievable. For example, Regis has circa 3,000 office spaces around the world. WeWork has circa 600. Uh, but WeWork's uh, indicative value at the moment is $47 billion, Per Regis is $3.5 billion. Regis is profitable. WeWork has circa 2 billion in losses. Yeah, I saw that
0: comparison as well. I was like, the only thing that's really separating these companies is that we work is the, the plans are so audacious. Like yeah. they are the ones who yeah. are saying, We are going to own the yeah. entire world. Whereas yeah. IWG have no such plans. This they're, is true. They're, yeah. they're keeping it kind of more down to earth exactly um, and it could
2: be the technology company thing it's kind of like a snap realised look we can't say we're an app so we're a camera company yeah. perhaps yeah. and I think um, <laughs> uh, WeWork uh, said possibly well you know real estate whatever it just doesn't sound right for a tech company
0: yeah that, I mean this is the thing like reading through it you're just you're trying to grab any thing that will give you a sense of how the how the business is operating, where they're making their money and how it's yeah. working. And you just can't. It's so all over yeah. the place. It's yeah.
2: Life. What is their critical metric or yeah. two or three? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. really looking out for that. I think early stage companies, yeah. of which my Wall Street is one, is forgiven not having that metric that you slavishly uh, pursue. Yeah. But I think when you go to float, it's time to say to the world, here's the thing we do. And here's how it's measured. You're putting so, yourself
1: in the microscope. And Totally, stuff, yeah. So, yeah. And
2: like, so people like the three of us and everyone else in the world who is going to forego a pleasure today, possibly by investing, should know what is the thing that are things that we should be watching and, and what we work. I'm, I'm at a loss. Yeah, I don't know. I
0: mean, look, their the last private valuation was $47 billion. Obviously, Uber and Lyft both took a big haircut on their past yeah. private valuations when they went public. So... So, so up in the air as to where this one's going to start off yeah. I really yeah. don't know what the market's going to tolerate when it comes to this So buy, sell or hold <laughs> Yeah I was just about to say <laughs> I've I'm already getting, shown my hand I'm getting the feeling we're not so bullish on we work. Well the thing is I like the idea of like the company like obviously there is benefits to the business yeah. mm. it's not a bad mm. business it's And they're just beautiful
2: yeah. offices and people are attracted yeah. to aesthetics and founders and businesses will want to go there because mm. they're in cool locations mm. with pretty setup and free beer or whatever but at the end of the day it's the economics of that business over the long term. Yeah,
0: I mean look, the, I mean the one thing they do and they do really well is they, try, they they turn a fixed cost into a variable cost, which is great for tech companies. It's like if you're a yeah. tech company and you're growing, yeah. You know that the idea that you can go from two seats to twenty seats in a yeah. month and, yeah. without any kind of it's movement is really, yeah. really powerful. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, I yeah, just wonder what what it's worth. Yeah, What's the um, yeah, and you know, is that you know Scott Galloway did that little Twitter video where he talked about what happens in a recession if you have all these ten-year leases and all the people that you're who are paying you money have two-month leases. What happens then? You get yeah. stuck with all this with all this inventory that you're not going to be able to shift. Yeah. yeah. So so when are they expecting or due to go public? It'll be in the
1: next few weeks. I haven't got a a final date yet. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So moving on then, Emmett, you were reading a book recently um, and it's about a magic formula for investing in the market.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when you say I read a book recently, I think I read this book 15 20 years ago when it was first written it's the book is called the little book that beats the market by Joel Greenblatt a fairly well
1: known one a very well
2: known yeah. book and and we dusted it down for this podcast because when it was written first it had some earth-shattering claims on its effectiveness how with a magic formula as as the accompanying website says magicformulainvesting.com with a magic formula you can outperform Uh, virtually any uh, index or individual uh, fund manager in the world. And reading a quote from the book, uh, the introduction uh, by Joel Greenblatt, I read directly here, after more than 25 years of investing professionally and after nine years of teaching at an Ivy League business school, I'm convinced of at least two things. Number one, if you want to beat the market, Most professionals and academics cannot help you. Number two, that leaves you only one real alternative. You must do it yourself. So I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll buy that. And the method that the book espouses is very simple you buy quality businesses at bargain prices. So again, using common logic you go yeah we want to buy quality businesses at bargain prices Makes so, sense. <laughs> so what is the definition of a quality business well in, in the book it's it's framed as return on capital so return on capital has a formula in its own right and it's the earnings Or uh, also known as the net profit divided by the capital invested so a worked example would be so if my Wall Street spent a million dollars building a training centre and that million was our invested capital and at the end of year one the net profit or the earnings from our from our um, training centre was $300,000 the return on capital is 30% 300,000 bucks divided by a million so The first thing you look for in a quality business is return on capital, and the second part of of the formula that, um, that Greenblatt espouses is bargain prices, and a bargain price in this case is the earnings yield, which is the earnings per share divided by the share price. And I won't give a worked example on what that is, I could, but it's a little tedious to listen to. So the book basically says that if you follow the magic formula, you will absolutely smash the average returns of the stock market. And what's that mean? So, again, if I can read directly from the book, um, uh, chapter six, page 32 of the first edition, <laughs> um, over the last 17 years, owning a portfolio of approximately 30 stocks um, that has a high return on capital and a uh, good uh, high earnings yield would have returned approximately 30.8% per year. Yeah. Okay. So, in, over 17 years, a CAGR, or compounded annual growth rate, of 30.8% uh, per year is absolutely unnaturally high. Yeah. I mean, the greatest legendary <clears throat> investors of our time are in the early to mid-20s percent per year. So the claims that this book had, and, and its subsequent edition, which is called a Little Book That Still Beats the Market are that by following this formula you will smash the market return. Yeah, not just beat it. No, absolutely annihilated. So as you can imagine, the investing world took great interest in this book because the credentials of the author are next to none. Mm. Like he is genuinely, he's the real deal. So we're some 17 or so years on from when the book was first written I, s- I stand to be correct so probably I haven't checked 15, 17 years on and then th- just to explain what you do with that formula is a couple of steps you generate a large sample of companies and in the book uh, Greenblatt uses uh, 3,500 listed companies uh, you rank them based on return on capital as explained and you then rank them based on earnings yield mm. as explained and uh, you add the rank for both, uh, for, for each firm, and you purchase the 30 best. And you put it in your diary to, to, in one year from now, come back and refresh your portfolio based on a couple of other little criteria. Yeah. And the, the promise that's upheld is that you will absolutely destroy the market. So now we have um, the benefit of hindsight to see how, in fact, the... Um, the magic formula has performed. and, um I, I just don't believe the results are as good as it seems. and and a lot of other blogs and investors and academics have tried to simulate the magic formula performance from the book. Um, but none that I can found have uh, that I can find have even come close. Yeah, um, it is extremely difficult to carry through on the returns that are um i wouldn't say promised in the book but indicate but indicate in the book and and the perfect example the the way of really getting there is on the front page of magicformulainvesting.com which is the website that accompanies the book uh gotham index returns are there taking up half the page and the gotham index was the vehicle that you could invest in to replicate the Magic Formula's formula. Okay. So you could read the book and you had two choices, three choices, ignore it, do it yourself, <laughs> or go with Greenblatt's uh, Gotham Index. Yeah. And um, so right now today, in big bold letters on the website, Gotham Index Plus is in the 10th percentile of Morningstar's large blend category since inception. I'm sorry, that's not good. Like if you are trancing the market with thirty plus percent CAGR, you won't be in the top tenth percentile. You'll be in the top one percentile, yeah. one percentile. So it it hasn't played out. And I, I have a whole load of academic papers. Somehow, uh, Scandinavia took great interest, and there's a bunch of white papers from uh, University of Stockholm uh, School of Economics, and there's one from uh, F- University of Finland, and uh, in those local stock markets by applying the rigour of the formula on their own markets, it's marginally beaten beaten the average return. So, yeah, it's a formula that appears to beat the market marginally, but I can't find evidence of a person or of um, a paper or an academic who have reliably replicated the returns that the book has kind of led with. So uh, I think, I mean, there is no mistrue. There's nothing in the book that is... A lie or a mistruth. The data that was analysed by Greenblatt was absolutely accurate, but it just didn't
0: play forward in a manner that a reader would have expected. I remember you. Uh, I think that was one of the first books you gave me yeah. to read on investing, and I yeah. remember reading it and thinking, I really hope this doesn't work, <laughs> because like because if it works, it sucks all the fun. It does. It, like it literally like it yeah. turns it into yeah. the, like it's like when you. Uh, it's like when you're playing a video game or something and you figure out the cheat code that automatically wins you every game and suddenly, yeah. like, it's, well, You just walk anymore? through it. Yeah.
2: yeah, this is true. And there's only two stocks in our app that... So when we sit down as a team to find quality businesses for a long-term investor, there's a range of resources we use. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the Magic Formula Investing website has never... Sorry, almost never been one. It has been a source we used once, and that's the royal weed. That was the me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had a look through the, the the bottom line list of stocks, and I pitched to the two of you, you'll recall, a really, really promising business called Nautilus, <laughs> famous for the Bowmaster, bow is it? Flexmaster? Flexmaster, Flexmaster. bow Bowflexer. Yeah, okay. So that has not transpired as one of our more astute. Decisions and frankly, it's the
1: worst performance stock in our app
2: by a long way? <laughs> and it was the number one top of the pile on the magic formula investing.com's filter when you applied Greenblatt's uh, formula. Obviously, uh, one single data point does not make yeah. for a data set, yeah. so I'm not trying to say, and therefore, it's all garbage, but the the big picture for me now all these years later is that the book just didn't really deliver and there'd be far more Maseratis and uh, Lamborghinis driving around Dublin if in fact it had been as accurate as it promised because yeah. I told everyone to read it
1: <laughs> <laughs> so moving on from uh, I read a book Um we're coming to the end of the month now, but there's loads of new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment, um, including our new stock edition for August. Rory, do you want to give a one sentence description of the new stock edition?
0: Um, yeah, one sentence. They are the leaders in getting the truth out there. Sounds like a religious cult. X-Files <laughs> style. Mm, yeah. They
1: are trying to get it out there. Cool. so you can check that out in the My Wall Street app now I just want to remind you as well that our first seminar event in person is coming up soon too is your opportunity to meet with the My Wall Street analyst team and absorb more than 25 years of investing experience into one day for more information on in person please visit the link that's been included with the show's notes today or just google My Wall Street in person that's I-N-P-E-R-S-O-N uh, moving on then jargon busters let's bust some jargon a question in from one of our customers Keith Thanks for the question Keith. He asked what are our thoughts on the new Disney bundle package. So Disney recently announced that their new Disney Plus service will be available as a bu- bundle along with ESPN Plus and Hulu for $12.99 a
0: month. Rory Yeah, it's um that was the the big announcement from their earnings so they 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 missed their earnings. Yeah, uh, because they were spending an awful lot of money trying to kind of incorporate Fox's assets into their uh Into their operations, but um, the the kind of headline uh, story was that there will be a bundle. Uh, Bob Iger had kind of already had already kind of put it out there that it was a possibility, but now we actually have like even a confirmation of it, and at least um, that for twelve ninety nine a month, you'll get Disney Plus. Uh, plus an ad-supported version of Hulu, okay, um, and uh, ESPN Plus. Yeah, it
1: uh, was quite kind of. It struck me the very ver- th- first thing I thought was that's the same price as Netflix.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's definitely uh, focusing in on the Netflix uh, c- customer and like it's you know we've talked about Disney Plus a lot before and mm. we broke down the the actual product when it first came out and I think I was blown away by how good it looked anyway Mm. from a a consumer point of view it was you know their their press launch in comparison to Apple Pluses was just you know apples and oranges Mm. Uh, (laughs) no pun intended there Um, but yeah I think this is going to be a really Really good package for people. Like if you th- like, uh, Disney Plus is is going to be a big feature think, yeah. in a lot of American households. Yeah, and um, because it's just it services a need that is there, which is that kids need entertainment. And if you wanna, f- you have a family friendly, hundred percent safe, no parental controls needed. Watch whatever you want on this yeah, service. Yeah. you're gonna have, and they'll be sitting there and they'll be watching it. Be yeah. happy for hours watching. Um, yeah. Marvel films and.
2: But you're right there Rory as a parent um, and my kids have their own Netflix uh, account uh, they can drift over and watch stuff that I'd prefer they didn't mm. see and uh, uh, you're absolutely that is a huge huge sales point for virtually any parent in the world
0: um, Yes so that, I think that's it's going to be a, a no brainer really for an awful lot of parents um, yeah. and then you know if, if there's any sports fans in the house ESPN Plus is there now that's not going to be I don't think that's big a, a, a sales pitch as part of the sales pitch as, as people think because yeah. you, to get the big events you still need to have cable and ESPN so mm. it's kind mm. of a diluted version of yeah okay of it but Hulu is is like the adult centric content then so you yeah. really do have a kind of mm. all in one package for yeah. the whole family yeah. essentially yeah and if there's a sports fan there all the better yeah yeah um, but I still don't think it's going to be a Netflix killer I still think Netflix is going to end up being the baseline that nearly the most households have. Yeah. this could possibly be number two on the list. Yeah, okay. And then you might have a couple of, you know, ones that you check in on for particular shows and, hmm. and switch back and forth between yeah. a couple of different ones. So could a company like Roku, which is quite, like,
1: service agnostic, could they be the big winner out of all this? Just uh, to go off on a tangent. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, there's a there's someone called, someone referred to Roku as the one stream to rule them all. Um, <laughs> so if they can, uh, if they can, Part of all that, yeah, Roku cool. will benefit as well. Yeah,
1: cool. So the next question we got in was from another customer, and Emmett, I'm going to point this towards you. Um, they asked, is there ever a point when outstanding shares are not available? So for example, if current shareholders don't want to sell and therefore no new buyers can't buy stock?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a question about stock liquidity, effectively. And stock liquidity is, is the ability to buy or sell a stock without affecting the price. Uh, So that means that there are enough shares out there for someone to sell at any point in time or to buy at any point in time. And uh, stock markets um, have a function called a market maker. And and a market maker is effectively a company or a person, an individual that always quotes a buy and a sell price for a share. So you can look at that share you fancy and and get a a bid or an ask, as it's commonly referred to by big service, full service brokerages. So they essentially are a liquidity provider and they make a profit off of what's known as the bid, offer, spread. So for big businesses, um, it's general rule, that large companies, you can always buy or sell the stock that you want to buy in the moment yeah, because of the functions provided by your full service brokerage. Um, and and in giant markets, you know, the U.S. in the in the SEC and the Security Exchange Commission in the U.S. Um, defines a market maker as a firm that stands ready to buy and sell a stock at all times. Yes. So, so, keep so the liquidity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with your big brand stocks, there is always a market there, and the system is set up uh, in order to help somebody. Uh, achieve the price they want. There's a couple of exceptions, and I'm sure those exceptions are where the question is pointed. And let me actually give an example. About two years ago, JT, my Wall Street's co-founder, and I went up to NASDAQ's first North Exchange in Stockholm City for the flotation of an Irish company called Zutech. And their market cap at flotation was something, and I I stand to be correct, was something like $20 million, which is really, really, really small. It's smaller than a nanotech. It's, It's microtech, you could say. Although then again, hold on, nano is smaller than micro. So uh, <laughs> anyway, it was small. Um, so uh,
0: <laughs> We uh, knew so, your physics degree. Was at, at last. At last, finally. <laughs> I've
2: been waiting for this moment. Stop the clock. Um, drops the mic. So uh, Zutech, we're floating at something like 20 million. And, and uh, I think that's as low as you go. And, uh, and uh, you can go on. It begged the question, and I asked the question, how do you sell your shares? I actually asked one of the founders, you know, how will you take money off the table without crushing the share price. I mean, if that person was inclined to try and liquidate $4 million of their stock, which is not entirely unreasonable if you're in the autumn of your career and you've worked your whole life to this point. In that case, example, that could be the 20% of the entire business. And and the so it was an extreme example of the need for liquidity. And the answer to that question was, as you could probably guess, and in that case, the CEO or or his advisors would need to go out and find a buyer yeah. and bring the buyer to the exchange, if, if you like. So the deal is done before you're even heading into the exchange. Okay. So the first point of two is that the smaller the business, the more illiquid its shares become, and that's why we say for small cap companies, you know, you should make sure that you are uh, buying shares in the middle of a normal trading day at least, or have limit orders and uh, on your on your small companies. Um, there's another event which is a free fall, and um, uh, if the market has gone into a free fall situation, as it did uh, on two occasions really in the last twenty years, which mm. was the dot com. Buster, bust uh, in around was summertime of 2000 and then a few years later in 06, you basically have – or was it 08? 08. Sorry, 08 financial crisis. Yeah. Um, I'm all over it. <laughs> and, um, and basically, um, no, I, I started to feel it in 06, That's pro- that was probably <laughs> it. Um, no, but um, when the market goes into a free fall situation, market makers struggle to actually create that liquidity. So okay. so uh, effectively, it's a long the long answer to a short question is that if you're buying a business that has a certain amount of um, size, mm. let's just say, for argument's sake a billion dollars plus there will be enough liquidity in normal market conditions to buy or sell. Just buy and sell yeah. Very, very close to the price that you're looking at on your screen in the moment. Yeah. Uh, other factors come into play if you know all hell is broken loose and everything is on sale yeah. and everything is falling. Um, but that is an exceptional yep. circumstance that has different dynamics
1: Okay, cool uh, So let's move on to Elevator Pitch then So for this week's Elevator Pitch I asked you guys to pick a company that's experiencing some success at the moment but that you feel there's storm clouds gathering on the horizon so they might be in for a bit of pain over the next few quarters or years um, Rory, let's go to you first We're running out of time so I'm only going to give you 30 seconds Oh good. well, uh,
0: just... Yeah, okay. Um, so the company uh, company has been incredibly successful over the last 10 years. I think it's up 32-fold. Uh, if you'd he- held it for the last 10 years, it's Domino's Pizza. And their last quarter was just a real disaster. They missed okay. uh, sales growth by a big margin, about like 20 million. Their same-store sales was supposed to be, where it was expected, like 4.8, dropped down to 3%. I think they are really feeling the pinch from um, ride-sharing companies like Uber Eats and Grubhub and things like that, because what they had, their big thing was how frictionless it was to get food delivered to your door. And I just don't think they have that economic moat anymore. Okay, interesting.
1: Domino's were one of the biggest winners of the last. Oh yeah, like like five years, ten years. One of the most Mm. successful investments I ever made. Yeah, that's for sure. So Emmett, your company that you feel is in for some pain soon
2: I'm going for a multi-year pain story I, I, I'm going to go with Sanderson Farms ticker S-A-F-M and Sanderson Farms basically uh, self frozen chicken Uh, they kill chickens, they freeze them and they sell them and uh, the end uh, buyer does what they will which is usually cook them so um, Sanderson Farm has had a hell of a run it's just been a a huge growth story um, from the late 90s and today is a 3.2 billion dollar frozen chicken giant and the reason that I'd be slightly bearish over the long term is I think that the world is waking up to the supply chain of, of anything to do with meat yeah. and that there's substitute products on the horizon that are ultimately going to erode um, the business's model.
1: Okay, so you're looking at companies like Beyond Meat? And exactly. Okay, interesting. Um, I don't know, I think maybe the Domino's one. I think uh, it's an interesting angle and it's a, it's a company that's been on such a rise recently. Mm-hmm.
0: I like the Sanderson Farms pitch though. And yeah. As
2: well. yeah, and also, I mean... Is it true that Domino's shares have outperformed Netflix over kind of a 10? Ten- I've certainly read that. If
0: they haven't, it's, it's close. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's about it
1: from this week's Stock Club. Um, don't forget, there's loads of great new stuff in my Wall Street app at the moment, including that new stock edition. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of the podcast, please make sure to get in touch on Twitter. That's at my Wall Street HQ or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying us, please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing.
2: Planning for your next trip?